Good morning and welcome. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors on the team here at Grace. Uh, thank you for taking your time out of your Sunday to join us today. Uh, we're thankful for you to be here, especially if you are a guest with us. Let me add my hello to you. And I know it can be hard for you as guests to walk into a new place and know no one. And so we'd love to provide that little gift for you, as, as Wes said. It really is just a, a free gift to you um, out, of the, out of the Welcome Center out there. So please feel free to grab it afterwards. Um, we'd love to yeah, just give, provide you a little gift. And as you know, if you've been here a little bit, uh, this week we're continuing our series uh, called Abide, uh, the subtitle there, Experiencing God in Everyday Life. And really the whole heart for this sermon series is to help us think beyond just knowing God, but to truly experience Him. To know Him, to hear Him, to have His eyes to see what He's doing, to have His heart for those around us to dwell with God moment, moment by moment throughout our day. And so as you know, as we think back to the painful weeks we've been in so far, week one, which is now like five weeks ago, uh, Don gave an overview of where we were going, looking at the, the passage in John 15 with the branches and the vine and how ultimately, as branches, our source of life has to flow through the vine. Then week two... George used Ephesians 3 to look at this idea that God is pursuing us and desires to have a love relationship with us. He wants to have a personal relationship with us. It's real and personal. In week 3, Greg used John 5 and, and Top Gun to illustrate to us how God is always at work around us. And he invites us into that work. In week 4, Don, uh, Don spoke again on Hebrews 1 and showed us that God speaks to his people. He speaks to his people through the Holy Spirit, through the Bible, through prayer, through circumstances, and through the church to reveal himself and his purposes and his ways. And last week, Chris Nickerson, if you were here, gave us a riveting message on how God's invitation for us to join him brings us to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. And so up to this point, we've seen God pursuing. God is working. God is inviting, and God is speaking. For us to see any of that, God has to open our eyes. It has to be driven by God in that first place. And we have to be willing to acknowledge and attribute that to him, where it rightly belongs. And so will we believe and trust God, what he's doing, and what he's saying, and how he's working around us, or all around us? God then calls us to live out our faith in both action and belief. And so action requires us to make adjustments in our life. And so today we're going to look at Acts 9 and illustrate how God calls us to make adjustments in our lives to join God in what he's doing. And so you kind of have this word picture. You have God over here at work. He's already working. He's doing things around us. He's at work. He invites us into that work and then we have this moment where we have to decide, are we going to join him or not? And to join him, it requires adjustment in our life. And so let me pray as we dive into Acts 9. And we'll take a look at what God was doing in Saul's life at the time. So Jesus, we just thank you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for just how you're at work around us, Lord. We thank you that we get to, to dwell with you. We get to know you more. We get to be your hands and feet. You invite us to join you in the work you're already doing, Lord. 
but that all is undergirded by the fact that you desire a personal relationship with us. Lord, all these things we talk about today, adjustments and obedience, etc., it, it all comes as a flow out of the salvation we've had from you. Nothing we do is going to change that reality. Nothing we can do is going to save us, Lord. But it's through us adjusting and, and living out an obedient life to you, Lord, that you, yeah, you use us in, our, in people's lives around us, Lord. So yes, Lord, you fill, fill me with your Holy Spirit. You speak through me that you would, uh, yeah, if there's things from you, they'd be quickly remembered. But if there's things from me and not from you, Lord, they'd be quickly forgotten. We just thank you for your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So point one, adjustments are necessary. So let's turn to Acts 9, and we'll see this principle playing out in front of our eyes in the life of Saul uh, and his conversion. So Acts 9, it's a, it's a long passage, so I'm not going to read everything. I'm going to summarize different pieces. But we'll start in Acts 9.1 that kind of set the stage. Acts 9.1 says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. So this is Saul in his natural habitat at the time. He was pursuing and seeking to destroy followers of Christ. And what he was doing specifically, he went to the high priest, and he was trying to get uh, basically papers to send him to a city in Damascus just so that he could pursue and hopefully apprehend followers of Jesus. So he's pursuing Christians to arrest them, and then on the way to Damascus, as we've probably seen the sto- heard the story before, in Acts 9, 4, and 5, he's blinded. And it says, Acts 9, 4, and 5, it says, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So this bright light comes all around him, his, his people with him. They heard sound, but they couldn't, it was debated whether they could distinguish the voice or not, but they also did not see the light at all. So Paul was just blinded, and so he'd be led to the city from outside the city by the traveling party who was with him. And then a couple of verses later in Acts 9, it says, for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And you can imagine as Paul was sitting there, blinded for three days, not eating, not drinking, sitting at Damascus, he was at that crisis of belief that Chris talked about last week. And after three days, Ananias came, and we'll get back to him later, but he restored Saul's sight at the direction of the Lord. And at this moment, Saul had to decide whether he would adjust to God's plan or continue in what he had been doing. And so I want to pick up the story a little bit later in verse 18. In verse 18 it says, And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. This is talking about when Ananias uh, came to him and restored his sight. Then he rose and he was baptized, and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is, is, this, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for the, this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And as you see how Paul had this moment of crisis of faith, three days blinded, and then he came out of that and he decided to adjust his thinking, adjust his belief, adjust his actions to follow God in this process. You see how he was 
rose and he was baptized, following direction from the Lord there. Um, and then you have immediately he proclaimed Jesus. Obviously, it's a change in belief in that process. He changed who he was associated with. He changed his circumstances. He changed his commitments overnight. And there are many different types of adjustment God calls us to in our lives. And Saul's conversion checks every single box. And so some of the adjustments that may be required, things about your beliefs. That may be what you believe about God. Maybe his, what you believe about his purposes. What you believe about his ways. Your relationship with him and others. And your thinking. Maybe prejudices you have. Methods you think about. Even how you think about yourself and your potential. About your past and others. In your relationships with family or friends or business associates or others. In your commitments to family, to church, to job, to plans, to, to tradition. In your circumstances to job and home and finances. In your actions, how you pray, give, and serve. These are all different ways that God kind of adjusts us as we know him and are, are abiding with him. And it's not just Saul's conversion. You see this happen throughout the Bible. You think about from the very beginning back in Genesis, Noah had to adjust multiple of these things to build an ark. He had to put aside all the criticism and all the people's thoughts about him. He had to completely change his entire daily life, what he was doing, just to continue to focus on building an ark. You think about Abraham had to adjust many of these as well. He had to leave everything he knew and travel into a foreign land completely dependent on God. Jonah had to adjust his thinking and his actions You have Elisha, who gave up everything to be a prophet. Elijah and David and Amos. The list can go on and on and on. You see countless examples and stories of people who adjusted their life after they'd received that call from the Lord, and after they had uh, accepted what he has done on on their behalf and accepted by faith who God is. God called them to adjust to him. And as I think about this, as you then move into the New Testament, you think about Peter and the disciples. What was the call to them? They said, he said, give up everything. Give everything you know. You're, he's their fisherman. They said, put your nets aside and come and follow me. They give everything they knew for that. And of course, they'd leave careers and families, thoughts about their potential. Because at that point, they had kind of been, they weren't good enough to continue on in the, in the Jewish like, hierarchy of Pharisee world. So therefore, they had this career they thought they could only get to. And of course, beliefs about God would rapidly change over the course of the next coming years as they walked with Jesus and followed him. We can walk through Hebrews 11 and story after story of person and how each character paired the faith they were given with action, and action required adjustments and obedience. And obviously, we're not the heroes of the faith, so it's easy to sit here and ask, what does this look like for us? Because it's so easy to get caught in this performance trap of, well, like, I just have to do this, this, and this to achieve, like, knowing God more. And that's completely the opposite of what the Bible calls us to. Nothing we do is going to change how God sees us. So I want to tell a little story to illustrate that. So the summer between my junior and senior year in college, I had the chance to go on a summer mission trip with crew. Uh, I went to Botswana, Africa for five weeks. I had a a wonderful time. Uh, We were there with a series of college students. Uh, I loved my time there. We had a great time working with college students, for a couple of weeks, we worked with um, some of the impoverished part of the city and a feeding station with kids and doing VBS-style work. We got to do some prison ministry and more. 
So I had a wonderful experience in five weeks, but one early afternoon in our time there, um, one of the African regional leaders came and spoke with us. And honestly, I don't remember what most of what he said. We were gathered there to hear kind of what he was doing and how it was a work and casting vision for like why what we were doing mattered, what difference it would make in, our, in, the, in the ministry there. But he said two things that day that are the only things I remember, honestly, from that conversation. But those two things completely changed my life. Those two things caused me to reconsider my potential, reconsider my purpose, and adjust my life plan that I had in my life. It forced me to adjust my thinking about who I was and what I was called to do. As I came back from that mission trip and those two things kept bouncing around in my head, I couldn't shake them. It forced me to consider what God wanted for my life and not just what I had in my own plans. It caused me to put aside everything I'd been working towards in school and abandon what others, including my family, might have thought about that path. And then you're probably wondering, what in the world could this guy have said that would have caused all that to happen? And so let me tell you. The first thing was a question. And he asked, is what you're doing today affecting eternity? Is what you're doing today affecting eternity? And the second thing he said was, give up your small ambition for something greater. And I, as I wrestled with those two statements, probably for a couple months, they kept bouncing around in my head, and I couldn't shake them. I knew God was asking me to consider what he would have, what his plan would be for my life, and not just the plans I had made. My whole life, I, had, I have a passion for sports. I love sports. I got my degree in sports management. But as I came back from that trip and those two thoughts bounced around in my head, it was almost like God was saying, hey, you've got a good plan, but what if I have a different one? And so maybe sit there and dwell and think about, well, do I want to give up my plan? I've been working hard for it. I've been, I've been doing, trying to succeed in school for it. At this point, I was a year, year away from finishing. But I knew that when God called a call like that, I couldn't refuse that. And so it was that, that moment and that summer mission trip, those two thoughts that kept bouncing around my head, that led me down the course to where I am today. And without those things, I would not be here with you guys up here. And so I knew I heard God speak to this man. I knew it was clear, as Don kind of talked about, with the idea that God speaks to his people. And I knew God was asking me to consider and adjusting my plans for my life. And I knew I had to, believe, I knew I had to, to question, am I just going to believe God and who he is for my salvation, or am I actually going to follow him? So often in the, in, the, in the New Testament, the disciples, the question Jesus continually asked was, will you follow me or follow me? It wasn't just will you believe me, but will you follow me? It goes a step beyond just believing. It's that idea of like, I can, I can intellectually know something in my head, or I can really believe it in my heart. And that distance to go from like belief in the head to actually knowing it in your heart can be really, really far. But I think this idea of adjustment is that piece, going from your head knowledge to your heart knowledge and truly living out of it and believing it and not just knowing it in your head. And now, as you guys may know in your own lives, adjustment's going to look different person to person. These adjustments could be in your beliefs and your actions. And as you face whatever crisis of belief God is bringing you to, do you just know it or do you know it and do you act out of it? And do you believe it? And oftentimes it's easy for us to think about the big adjustments. I think about like, yeah, my life was changed on some mission and my direction in my life was changed. But a lot of times it can be more challenging to see the ongoing little daily adjustments we make all the time. 
You see in Acts 9, we saw those adjustments in Paul, the big ones that kind of changed the trajectory of his life. But part of the story in Acts 9 is also this guy, Ananias. Ananias is pivotal to the story. But it's really one of the only places we see about him in a significant way. We know he was a disciple at Damascus. And we know that he had a pivotal part in Saul's story. And so we see this here in Acts 9 and 10. Let's pick it up there. 9, 10, verses 10, 9, verse 10, 11. There we go. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And a couple of verses later, verse 13 says, But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call in your name. So you see that moment of like trepidation of like, are you sure? Are you sure you want me to go to this guy? The guy that literally has been persecuting and taken captive friends of mine and people I know. But it continues, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and, children, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, on Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. See, Ananias was willing to adjust his life to what God had for him. In somewhat a seemingly small way, it was to go and talk to this guy, and you're going to give him sight, not through your own power, through God's doing. But he was willing to be used by God. He had that crisis of belief. Are you sure this is the guy? And he was willing to go. And by going... God involved him in the work he was already doing in Saul's life. Ananias didn't cause the work of Saul. Ananias got to be part of what God was doing in Saul's life, though. And I think it's a great example of just a small adjustment, so many of the interactions with Jesus during Jesus' ministry, so many of the interactions he had with people were small adjustments. I look at Jesus' ministry, and oftentimes it's this ministry of interruptions, where he's like going one place, and all of a sudden, like something happens and he diverts his attention and, and does something different before going back to what he was already doing. And so I think there's a number of stories like this, but one of the ones that I always enjoy is, is the story of the bleeding woman, where you have this guy, he's going to, to heal uh, Jairus' daughter, who's 12, and this woman touches a cloak in the middle of a crowd. And she just stops, like, who touched me? And all the disciples are like, you serious, Jesus? There's a thousand people around here. Like, what are you talking about? Everybody is touching you. He's like, no, 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 someone specifically touched me. And he highlighted this woman and it was able to, to minister to her and care for her in a place where she had been on an outcast for 12 years. He was able to, to reach in and provide care to her all because he was making a, willing to make a small adjustment to what his plan was already doing. He was willing to adjust to where he was going to see and take part of what God was doing otherwise. He didn't have to stop, but he chose to. And he chose to be a part of what God was doing. And I think we see lots of good examples of adjustments in our life, but we also see some bad examples of people who didn't choose to adjust their life to follow God. So I think about the rich young ruler in Luke 18. He was told to sell all he had and give it to the poor, 
but he's unwilling to make that adjustment in his life. Or you see Judas, who obviously was following Jesus for many years, but then unwilling to make the ultimate, just, the ultimate adjustment to ultimately follow him. Or you see in Luke 9, there's three young men that ask him questions back to back to back that say, Lord, I'm going to follow you wholeheartedly. And then he showed them an area where they needed to adjust, whether it be family or finances or things like that. And each one was unwilling to do so and kind of left the crowd. And if we're really honest, I think oftentimes we're probably more like those than the guys who really do it well. We oftentimes just don't want to be inconvenienced. We don't want to change our schedule. We don't want to adjust our finances. We, we don't want to consider where God might be calling us different because we're comfortable. It's easier to keep the status quo. We know how to live the status quo in our own power. But to really abide with God and experience his power, sometimes it takes stepping out in faith and really listening to see if God would have adjustments for us. And oftentimes, I think one of the things that makes this challenging is we tend to think about this idea of adjustments like, are you sure that's legitimate? But I think we overlook is we, we make adjustments in our life all the time. We adjust our lives around a new boyfriend or girlfriend. We adjust our lives in dramatic ways when we get married or have kids. We adjust our lives for sports teams, adjust our schedule for things like Super Bowls. We adjust our lives for other things we're passionate about. We adjust our lives to new schools or new classes we have every year. We adjust at work to new projects or new schedules. We adjust our budgets for things like our daily Dunkin' Runs or, or a new phone. But will we adjust to what God is doing? See, the truth is we will adjust things for things that we have. We will adjust our life for things we value. That's just the reality of it. We adjust things in our life for things we value. So the question is, are we valuing the right things? Are we valuing God things? Or are we valuing things in our own life that cause us comfort in that process? And just like a chiropractor, adjustments are for our good. This doesn't mean it will always go well. Adjustments to the chiropractor can be painful at times. This isn't some sort of name it and claim it type of good that automatically it will be like, yes, this is great. But adjustments are designed to bring th things that are misaligned back into alignment. It brings our hearts back into alignment with how God wants to use us. The good is experiencing God, to know him more, and becoming more like him as we get to know him and become, uh, just develop that abiding relationship. Ananias had his beliefs about God and his thoughts towards Paul radically shifted because of his willingness to adjust his thinking. The bleeding woman that Jesus encountered had her life altered because of Jesus' willingness to alter his plan. And so what might be some of the smaller adjustments that we have to make or need to make in our lives Maybe these are things you've already done or maybe things that God might call us to do at some point. So adjustments might be needed in our beliefs about God and our thoughts towards sin, our own sin in our life if it's not going to have the same power over us over time. Adjustment might be needed in our circumstances to take that necessary step of faith, maybe to change jobs due to certain policies your employer aren't honoring to God. Maybe adjustment is needed in our thoughts and beliefs to find our identity in Christ and to realize how loved we are by him no matter what we're going through. Adjustment is needed to our plans if we're going to give our time to volunteer 
for things here at church or things elsewhere. Adjustment is needed in our thoughts and beliefs and circumstances about what our capability might be. Maybe it's to go on a mission trip this summer. Quick shout out to our mission trips this summer. Today is the deadline, so if you haven't signed up and you want to, do so. Greg and I are excited for the teams that are going to happen this year. Uh, it really is. I mean, I'm so excited to see the ways that God's going to take our willingness to adjust our life this summer and see the many stories of God working because of people's willingness to adjust their life and willingness to trust him and join God where he's inviting them to go. So we already make adjustments all the time in our lives, but are you willing to make those same adjustments for God? Does God want you to adjust your beliefs or your thoughts, your relationships, your commitments, your circumstances, your actions? Adjustments are necessary for us to join God. And that really brings me, that's really kind of my whole first point there is adjustment is necessary to join God. And that brings me to my second point, that obedience is costly. When you make adjustments and join God in his work around you, it will cost us. It can also cost those around you as well. Perhaps it will cost you reputation, or perhaps it will cost you time, energy, money, or even your life as it did for many of the disciples. If you are obedient to God in finances, perhaps it will cost you and your family some of the luxuries that otherwise we would have been afforded if we weren't prioritizing what God was doing in our life. If you're obedient to God and he sends you as a missionary somewhere, that may be at the expense of your relationships with your family. I think about Hudson Taylor and founding the Christian Inland Mission. When he was leaving on the boat to go to China for the, for the first time, he left his widowed mom on the dock and he knew this was probably the last time he was ever going to see her. Sometimes it costs us and those around us. Missionary C.T. Studd said this, If Jesus Christ be God and he died for me, then no sacrifice is too great for me to give to him. For the parable of the rich young ruler, that obedience would have cost him his money. For Elisha, obedience cost him his livestock as he slaughtered his animals and provided a meal for the, for the town before he went in to be a prophet. The three men in Luke 9, it would have cost them their family, their finances, and their living situation. For Noah and Job, it cost them relationships with their friends, with their family, and many more things. For Abraham, it cost him his house, his possessions, his relationships, and more, as he was willing to follow God. For the disciples, it cost them their livelihood and their relationships right off the bat, and obviously much more down the road as they were willing to give their lives for God. But let's, lead, let's rejoin the story of Saul in Acts 9. At this point, Saul has been converted to a Christ follower. He went from persecuting to, he went from persecutor to persecuted. And he was proclaiming Jesus to anyone he could. So let's pick it up in Acts 9, verse 23. It says, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. And then a few verses later in Acts 9, 29, it says, And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. So immediately... He went from persecuting to persecuted to the point where people were trying to kill him. And Saul adjusted his life and preached Christ as the Lord. The Jews in Damascus sought his life. Then a few verses later, the Hellenists in Jerusalem planned the same. Obedience cost Jesus his life, and it cost the disciples their lives. It cost Paul his life and so much more. 
You read in 2 Corinthians 11 some of the things that Paul went through. Five times I received the hands of the Jews, the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So you see pressures on Paul, both outwardly and inwardly, continued face of dangers. He had a pretty good life as a Pharisee. He was persecuting, but he lived as one of the upper echelon Jewish people in Israel. And he gave it all up for countless costly things in his life. And I think oftentimes this idea of losing our life for faith is something we really don't talk about, really don't experience realistically here in our culture. But we also know we have brothers and sisters around the world that oftentimes count the cost very strongly what it means to them when they come to faith in Jesus. Our Muslim brothers and sisters that come to faith are oftentimes disowned from their family and oftentimes killed for their faith. I'll never forget, I was at a, a church in, in Palestine uh, during college. I had a mission trip there and I got to go on and uh, they had a video testimony that played and it was a pretty standard testimony, like this is kind of what my life was before Christ, this is kind of how God worked in my life to bring me to Christ, and this is how I, this is what like, difference it made in my life now that I know Christ. It was encouraging and challenging as to how we lived, and how we lived out his faith in a Muslim country. Then the video ended, and the words came on the screen that this man came to Christ at this date. This, this testimony was taped at this date, and he was killed this date all within a couple of years. And I remember those words hit me like a lead balloon because that's not something we see in our testimonies in the States. We just don't see that. We see testimonies, a great testimony here and a baptism here, and it's like everything's happy and yay. But the cost it meant for them is very real. I couldn't tell you a single word otherwise in that sermon, but that thing has stuck with me. That testimony stuck with me to this day because it really brought that idea of it being costly home in a new way. But obedience isn't just mustered up. It's not something we just kind of do. That type of obedience comes only by dependence on Christ, on God working in us and through us to give us that type of obedience. And that kind of brings me to my final point today, that total dependence on the Lord. Total dependence on the Lord starts when we receive the good news of Jesus and recognize that relationship with God, that he pursues us. It goes back to what George was talking about a few weeks ago, that God pursues us with a love relationship, this personal relationship that he desires for us. That loving relationship with God is still the undercurrent through all of this. It is what fuels it, it's what motivates it, it's what makes it happen. And the gospel says we can do nothing to earn God's love and favor, but he graciously provides it as a free gift to us. At the cost of his son, the ultimate cost of his son, and we have to decide whether that's something we'll take and, and believe or not. It's only when we accept Jesus as Savior and Lord that we become children of God and are given the Holy Spirit to walk alongside of us 
And he's the one that enables us and empowers us to, to live yielded moment by moment, trusting him. Jesus Christ is already Lord over all. But functionally in our lives, this idea of lordship is something we continually are giving things over to him. He is Lord. It's one of those things that are kind of like the, the now and not yet of Scripture, the things we hold in tension, that like, yes, God's Lord. That's obviously true because of who he is. But at the same time, functionally, lordship is something we have to give to him and let him have control. It's, it's this idea like, I like this picture of like a, our house. We kind of let Jesus in the front door and kind of bring him to live room when we come to know him. And maybe over time as we know more, like we'll let him in the kitchen, the dining room, maybe even a, a bathroom, bedroom. But functionally, we oftentimes keep those dark closets, the storage closets in the back locked and just think, okay, like you can, have, you can hang out here, Jesus, but that's, that's my space. On the one hand, it makes functional sense that we do that. On the other hand, it's completely laughable because he already knows what's in there. He's all-knowing. And what we didn't realize when we let Jesus in the house, he actually bought the whole place and it's his and he has authority to go, to go in, rearrange the furniture, and to go in every dark closet we, he wants. But instead of just coming in and demanding that and doing it, he lovingly pursues us. He lovingly pursues each area of our life and patiently asks us to relinquish control to him. Patiently asks us that key to that next room in our life that he wants to rearrange. It's a lifelong adventure of walking with him and willingly giving over things to him as he desires it. I'm going to go ahead and call the worship team up here. See, we so often walk around with these closed-fisted mindsets about our lives that we're going to hold on tightly to whatever it is we want that we don't want to give over to God, whether it be our plans, whether it be our finances, whatever it is. We walk around closed-fisted with our plans, our thoughts, our relationships, our circumstances, and more. But God invites us to open our hands and seek control to Him. Oswald Smith, a missionary to Canada, put it this way, I want thy plan, O God, for my life. May I be happy and contented, whether in the homeland or on the foreign field, whether married or alone, in happiness or sorrow, health or sickness, prosperity or adversity. I want thy plan, O God, for my life. I want it, O I want it. Is that our desire? Do we desire to give it to him and say, God, whatever you want, be Lord. Romans 12, 1 and 2 puts it this way, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Present your bodies as living sacrifices. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing your mind through the word, through the Holy Spirit working in us, so that he can reign in our life. We know that obedience doesn't save us, so don't hear that. We know adjust, adjustment, obedience, and dependence outflows a relationship with Christ that is founded on Christ alone. And just because we make, obedience, uh, make adjustments, are obedient and dependent day by day, doesn't cause God to do things. As we know, God's already at work around us. 
our adjustments, our obedience, and our dependence simply make us more aware of that, what God's already doing. It opens our eyes to the work he's doing all around us already. So we don't do this perfectly. We know that. And God meets us exactly where we are. You see countless times through the characters of the Bible that they go kind of like halfway and God meets them where they are. We're not perfect and that's okay. But the big idea I have for us today is that adjustment and obedience are only possible through dependence on the Holy Spirit reigning inside of us. It's this idea and this picture that adjustments and obedience are always fueled by the relationship with Christ we already have. It's fueled by the Holy Spirit working in us, moment by moment yielding and trusting to Him. And I want to look at one more verse from Acts 9. That's verse 31, which is the result of this whole thing. Don's going to talk more about this next week. But I know both Chris's message and this message are, are hard messages of will we adjust and believe and trust in Him practically. The end of Acts 9, though, is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Saul has been radically transformed. He went from persecuting to persecuted and preaching Jesus as Lord so much so that people are seeking to kill him. And Acts 9.31 says this, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. In Acts 9, because of Saul's adjustments, because of Saul's obedience and total dependence on the Lord, because of Ananias' adjustments and obedience and dependence on the Lord, as well as countless other disciples, the churches throughout all of Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace. It was healthy, spiritually. And as they walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Spirit, the church was growing exponentially. Oh, what a beautiful hope and vision for the church. And how I want to end this moment is take a moment and, and just kind of think about, like, how do we, how do we apply this in our lives? And um, for many years, as, as I worked on staff with crew, one of the things we did at our winter conference every year is we'd have a, a pledge at the last night we'd do, and it was about this idea of lordship. Are we willing to give and cede control to him? Are we willing to trust him for whatever he may lead, however he may lead? And so it was four statements that went like this. I will go where, I want you, where you want me to go. I will do what you want me to do. I will say what you want me to say, and I will give what you want me to give. And so what I want to do is just for a moment, kind of let these, these four thoughts bounce around in your head and, and process them for a minute. I'm going to have the, the worship team play just some instrumental, instrumental music for you to kind of pray and think on these ideas. Are we willing to adjust? Are we willing to obey? Are we willing to be dependent on God? are willing to go, do, say, and give whatever he may call. And I know this is a, a strong call because it's one of those things where we don't know what God may have for your life. I don't know where he might send you. I don't know what he might ask you to give or to do or to say. It may be something small, as simple as talking to a neighbor. It may be as big as moving across the world. And so we will take some time and pray on this. And if you're willing to commit to this, just while this instrumental music's playing, just say it to God in prayer. Just give it to Him and say, God, I want this. I want to adjust my life to You. I want to be obedient to You. I want to be dependent on You and trust Your Spirit's work. So let me pray for us, and the worship team is going to play a few chords here and linger for a minute. Jesus, You are good. You are faithful. 
You are true. And all of this flows out of that. All of it flows out of your pursuing of us, your desire to have relationship with us. It flows out of your free gift of grace and mercy to us. And you're giving the Holy Spirit to us, Lord, that we get to live moment by moment, yielding and trusting you. We know you're Lord over all, Lord. But we pray, Lord, that we would functionally, practically allow you to be that. Which is silly to think about because you already are. But it's also this weird tension we hold in Scripture that we have to functionally get over, Lord. So I pray that as we, as we do all these things, I pray, Lord, that you would challenge us to go where you want us to go, that you will help us to do what you want us to do, we will say what you want us to say and that you will give, we will give what you want us to give. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.